From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm Elliot Tseng. With me, I have a special all-Asian episode of In Search of Sauce. <laughs> I have Joshma, who is, well, many things. The great Joshma, <laughs> a great writer and great professional. And I have with me another great professional, Ryan, a writer at Central Sauce and Football Paradise. Like I said, I'm Elliot, a content creator and a Central Sauce contributor. That's my tag. And in this episode, we've got three great pieces. We have a piece on artists removing music from streaming platforms and the politics and economics behind that and what they mean for the greater music communities. We have a piece on Kendrick Lamar and the Two Pimp a Butterfly album that came out seven years ago about. Um, this is being recorded on the 19th and the article is from the 15th. And I think that, okay. So, and then the third piece um, is about We Don't Talk About Bruno, a song that is taking over or had taken over, has taken over the world from the movie Encanto. First, we're going to, uh, first, we're going to begin with Joshima's piece, however. So, Joshima, would you like to talk about this piece for us? Yes, as a great, great professional professional that's great that sometimes reads articles <laughs> i really enjoyed this <laughs> yeah. one um, yes. yeah it's no secret that i definitely really enjoy andre's reading writing and bring it often but i thought this piece was really 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 important because there's this there's this been in there's been this incredible influx of much more inclusive lineups on festivals, an increase in festivals. Everybody is kind of in this weird live shows are coming back. Concerts seem important. Human connection seems vital. And that makes me think about consumption a lot and and where we're finding our music, but also about DSPs being the only place people consume music anymore and what that might look like in the future. Um, But yeah, Andre's piece talks about whether or not artists are removing their music from DSPs for the best reasons. So I'm curious, before I dive into a couple of my hot takes from the piece, if you both think that artists should or should not remove their music from streaming platforms. Ryan, you go first. Um, So it's a really tricky thing, right? (laughs) And Andre is brilliant at diving into very tricky things like this. Because he points at uh, people like Rap Ferreira, one of my favorite artists, and Rock Marcy as like indie artists who are sidestepping streaming, uh, just like Kanye and Snoop Dogg have. But he makes this point about um, these indie artists having to do that as a symptom of this music industry system, which means that they have to take measures outside the system in order to make any kind of livable wage, any kind of money. But when artists like Kanye do it, it's kind of exploitative too. 
it's kind of a way to um, pretend that he cares about artists and, you know, co-opt this thing that indie artists are doing to make it seem like he is for the artist, for the people, as Andre points out. But at the end of the day, it's just something he's doing to line his pockets because charging people more for your music when you're already a billionaire isn't exactly tearing down the system of oppression that kicks down on indie artists so when we say uh, when we talk about artists as a general whole removing music from streaming if you're indie and you're doing this so you can literally pay your bills great i'm with it i can't say anything against that it's your art you do what you want <clears throat> similarly with big artists that's your art you do what you want but i'm gonna hate you a little bit because you you have a, you're in a position to like uh change actually make genuine change and you're deciding to um put up this kind of farce and be a hypocrite a little bit yeah i think that that accurately summates a lot of what andre masterfully writes here and the heart of a lot of the analysis um i'm an artist i make music and stuff it's one of the things i do and i think it's a question that comes up very very often um in your own head and in conversations with others talking about the music industry talking about how to release their music I think, obviously, first and foremost, it's all up to the discretion and the situation of each artist. So one artist builds their following and their revenue and their careers on how well they allocate their resources and how well they engage with DSPs. There's a lot of artists that have gotten themselves nice paydays and opened great avenues for themselves by being able to use the artist for Spotify feature as flawed as it might be, as, as flawed as Spotify might be, but being able to create a specific type of song that works with audiences on streaming platforms, targeted on playlists, so they just pitch it, right, through that, through that platform, have it reach playlists, and all of a sudden you've got a song with millions of streams, and that's potentially, you know, thousands of dollars for you. Um, which, yeah, it's not the, great, the greatest conversion rate, right? It's not exactly big bank as it probably probably should be but at the same time it is utilizing something that otherwise wouldn't exist it's utilizing a resource and building something great and being able to to make money for it and that's great and then there's other artists who we see a lot we've seen a lot of great examples of this in hip-hop artists like makami and rock marciano who very much live outside of that or have lived outside of that and into something perceived as a periphery by dropping music on their own platforms, on their own websites, physical versions, tapes, and distributing them on their own and getting their own revenue from it. And it's an extremely, not only valid way to make music and release music, but it's a very smart, very forward-thinking way. Because at the end of the day, a fandom, a fan base is what matters, and real revenue is what matters. And a lot of times, artists are very fooled into the sort of clout chasing and the trend keeping up of maintaining your presence on dsps of putting things in the distribution channels and you know this idea of accessibility and all of that but music doesn't have to be accessible like your music does not have to be available on all platforms you don't have to do any one thing that's one of the beauties of the career although it's a very difficult one you can do it the way that works for you as long as you're following the energy that works best for your situation you'll be able to have a good career. And I think that the problem with these artists 
it much shadows the ironically the issue of the nfts and the metaverse that there's a lot of what's discussed here as well with regards to snoop dogg and making death row records an nft label or whatever his plan sort of is it's this idea of like oh we're going to decentralize we're going to get on the ground floor of this important technology that's going to change the world we need to be on top of it as artists we need to make money off of it and not only are you really only putting forth a plan that's just going to enrich you but also it's completely missing the point of what independent music and what the problem with music and the music industry really is there's a great quote from this piece um i'm gonna take a second to make sure i find it because uh, I, I tweeted it out um, the, 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 the essential problem is that of the independent artists, right? It's at the heart of the independent ethos is the betterment of the community. Independent artists don't just go independent because they're trying to capitalize. Um, it's a career path that you go on because the alternative and the independence is what is necessary for you. And it is representative of a alternative path that is much more rewarding for not only you, but for other people. And doing some NFT stuff and some metaverse stuff and some, you know, STEM player stuff where you just build this big business on your own that you can inject your already extant capital into and make all this money off of. That's really just the same thing as the system that already exists, which is to say creating things, being on the ground floor of things that will make a lot of money off of people and then utilizing it and marketing it until you've extracted as much capital as possible from it. That's not the same thing as something that's counter to the system. That's just making the system again in a new shape. But, you know, as Dan Olson really points out in this NFT piece that he did that got really viral on YouTube, it's just the same story with different characters. It's like looking at the 2008 economic crash and saying that the problem wasn't that all of the bankers were you know, completely robbing and exploiting people and, and ruining millions and millions of lives through an inherently exploitative system that they could, knew they could exploit because nothing would happen to them. The problem was that you weren't included in that group. The problem was that the, the group of bankers was not you and your friends. It was some people that were in an establishment that you couldn't hack into. And so the way that these, you know, the artists like Snoop Dogg and Kanye seem to look at their business endeavors is instead of, oh, we're going to change the music industry in the sense we're going to we're going to really revolutionize it and, and liberate people. It's we're going to do the same thing again, but we're going to be on the ground floor this time. So we're going to make all the money. And that's just something that I really hope people can start seeing into more and more because it's 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 quite naive, I think. For people to constantly flock to that as some sort of revolutionary positive idea instead of what it is which is just hyper capitalism continuing you know but joshma what were your hot takes <laughs> i you know i think that both of you touched on a lot of points that i felt while reading it as well especially the indie artist versus someone that has the capital or the platform to take their their music off but I think there's like four main points I really want to talk about. There's this false equivalency that happens and we see it all the time because outside of being a professional, great professional at Central Sauce, I manage artists and do music partnerships often. And something that we say a lot to indie artists is that fame and influence do not equal income and sustainability. 
And a lot of what happens is a lot of artists are chasing volume because the world's convinced us that volume and scalability equal more access to money. And that's true in that the more people that listen to the music, the higher the streams are, the more you're getting paid out per stream, right? And perhaps your discoverability is higher. But hip-hop as a genre has not been built fan-first the way that pop was. Pop relied on massive fan groups to mobilize in all of the 2000s for those artists. So now when we're hearing a lot of these larger companies, Audiomack, other entities, Trapital, encouraging artists to be really, really fan-centric, and we encourage our artists to be really, really fan-centric at Ode. We love our Discord channels much more than we care about what's happening on DSPs and other things like that. But that takes a really high level of understanding how to aggregate your metrics, how to leverage social media platforms, and how to make sure that you're willing to be fan-first and engaging fans in a world that might be progressing out of its need for notoriety and accolades and volume and the record label system, but that still exists, right? And so I think it's a really important reality to be like, are you okay with the concept of middle class in the music industry where you, if your bills are paid and your needs are met and you like your life and you create art you're proud of, but you're not famous and the world doesn't know who you are and they really have to search for you. And I think the more and more recently I've been traveling to Canada a bunch and learning about their ecosystem. And I know several artists there that are really, really successful. They are full-time musicians. And a lot of that comes from live gigging in Canada, selling records, selling things to their fans at a much more reasonable price point. But not everyone knows their name. And so... If you look them up on Spotify, they're probably not as popping as someone else is, right? And so I think that that's something to consider too. Are we really ready for a middle class of music? And are we okay with acknowledging that the more possibilities we create for other people to be equivalently as successful means that there's going to be a lot more to consume? And so we might not be super, 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 super famous and illustrious in the same way. And I'm very invested in the idea that arts should have a middle class and that it's not something that should only be consumed by either the elite or the mass public at the expense of the artist, right? I think that like any other career, there is a way to make it sustainable, but there are there are things that you end up, I don't want to use the term losing because I don't think it's losing, but you might have to forego being the most famous person in the world for 30 years, Um so I think that that's like something to think about, you know, scalability yeah. does not always equal profit. I think for indie artists specifically, the lift we do as a team, I can only speak to is hours and hours and hours of work of figuring out how to bring our music to our fans, how to give them opportunities first, how to make those opportunities affordable. But the idea that a STEM player is like really, really high end in the scheme of things we're talking about. We're a digital world. I think that the cost of creating something that's accessible to your fans in terms of streaming is a conversation we should have. So Andre gets into the piece and he talks about how it's easy to assess the inequity. We can see the differences between artists that can afford to take their music off and artists that can't. But what is the solution to the actual streaming platform, right? A $200 stem player is expensive to produce for the average person and to purchase for the average person. But 
Things like a white label software that's on a cloud service or creating a website where people can stream audio, that is significantly less expensive. It requires a certain set of skills, perhaps, but I think with the internet, like there's a world in which artists are doing their listening parties online and living in the metaverse, and that has its pros and cons as well. But should artists be creating their own apps and streaming services for people to consume their music and then using social media as the vehicles? for discovery of that music, as opposed to, I heard the song on TikTok and now I go to Spotify. Maybe it's, I heard the song on TikTok and now I go to Kendrick Lamar's app to listen to it. Um, and then that feels complicated because then are you paying by the artist? What does that look like, etc. But maybe owning our data and understanding how people are spending isn't a bad thing, but it is a really high lift. Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. And you talk about like paying by artists, but isn't that like, essentially buying cds <laughs> isn't that essentially buying vinyl and i think that might be the only way to go is some kind of like back to the itunes store guys where <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't see a future where a streaming platform can be set up that isn't completely exploitative because streaming in its essence is made for us it's made for consumers who don't really care about eyes welfare, who just want to listen to the music at the lowest price possible and the most convenience possible. And discover artists are the most in, uh, most convenience possible. It's it's terrible for artists. And I really like what your suggestion about a middle class for music. And I think a lot of creative industries could do with that, um, the creation of a middle class. Because honestly, like we're all Asian. We've all heard the idea of creative industries not being a viable uh <laughs> path for living yeah. life you know um <laughs> sorry for st- forcing stereotypes <laughs> I just, right i really hate that i said that i mean i'm sure we're not the only ones either <laughs> yes but it's absolutely no. true but you've heard it before right um but i think that well, that's what needs to be forged i don't know how people smarter than me can figure that out like joshima who <laughs> is a professional um <laughs> yes. like, whoa i am not carrying the onus of that i don't have the answer it's but, you, you alone joshima there's no one else i'm sorry there's no one else it's just, just you <laughs> i do think you know like i canada has its own issues for sure but the way they treat royalties and splits and neighboring rights and the amount of grant funding music gets in that country as a whole is I think the first step to the middle class of music because if you make the process of creating music one that doesn't hemorrhage you into debt or require you to have seven jobs, then perhaps the process of sharing music changes in terms of how much you're relying on the streams, right? Because, I mean, who do you know that's happy with any of the streaming platforms pricing or aggregation or discovery tools? We all listen to them because they're the best we've been given and it's like, LimeWire or everything now. But if LimeWire found a way to come back and is doing something as an NFT, then I feel like Ooh. I feel like we can do something. Maybe so. Yeah. There's uh, there's too many possibilities and it's all it's it's very much all riding on on our economic state like as a world, which is <laughs> shifting in ex- extremely strange ways. I think within the next 10 years 
we'll be continuously asking these questions but at some point there will be this moment where people go okay this will be the thing for a while it feels like streaming has been oddly impermanent like there's never been a feeling of like oh well this is just life as music consumers now it's still a little bit jarring because there's there's new streaming services and then there's new streaming anti-streaming services right and I think that it it opens up an exciting world of possibilities for people while also being at the end of the day a symptom and a product of just how broken our systems are you know yeah i think for us especially because we still remember owning things you know we used to we used to own things and when streaming came along it never felt like this is my music you know like yeah the bunch of cds i have there and the vinyl i have there that that feels like my music but i feel like my music on my phone can be stripped away from me at any second and that's the kind of fear in the consumer that i don't think's been really properly i don't know processed i guess i wonder if there's something about you know this world of audio mac has a supporters feature now where you can give artists money to create projects and they take a much lower percentage of that fee comparatively speaking it's in the artist's favor, the one-off record label deals that are happening as singles and not full albums or owning someone for two years or the concept of Patreons, etc. It reminds me of like MySpace days when you could send someone a little bit of money for their project or be the first one to write on their wall or whatever on Facebook, right? And a lot of these streaming services, I think the thing to pay attention to is they're not just capitalizing on providing a listener base globally to artists, they're capitalizing on the artist's listener base itself. So quite literally, it's not just the music, it's the, you know, like Spotify's rap caviar did that thing where they told you how long you've been listening to X artists or X fans since they've had the app. That has nothing to do with what songs you're listening to from them or the music itself. It has to do with how long you've been a fan because currently society craves being early adopters. They crave notoriety of having supported someone early. And so stuff like that you can do as an artist without any streaming service, right? You could be giving your own fans and audiences exclusive experiences, awards, etc. by paying attention to who's been supporting you the longest, And so I think like sometimes we're really linear in talking about what labels and DSPs take from musicians because it's really not just the song. It's so much more than that. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're not going to have really any more time to discuss this as we do have to get on to our next articles. But I think that this was an incredible conversation. I thank you, Joshua, for bringing this article here. Again, this is Are Artists Removing Music from Streaming for the Best Reasons? It's an article on Complex by Andre G. That's G-E-E. And if you read the article, you'll see some discussion on a particular move made by the artist Kendrick Lamar that was relevant to the conversation of removing catalogs from streaming. And it's not the most flattering, um, you know, situation in terms of Kendrick Lamar's reputation. It's a bit debatable as well. Um, But we won't have time to delve into that. So I'll just make mention of it in order to transition to our second article, which is actually the one I've brought in. It is for the Brock Press. And it's called Kendrick Lamar's To Pimple Butterfly Exposed the Contradictions of the Music Industry from the Inside Out Seven Years Ago. It's by Haitham Nawaz. 
and it is a very sort of timely piece. I mean, we're a few days off of it, but we are on the seventh year anniversary of To Pimp a Butterfly, which is an album that if you are a hip hop head from the past few years, yeah, it's just basically one of the foundational texts of our current hip hop landscape. Um, it is an incredible album, in my opinion, and many others' opinions. It's an incredibly relevant album. And it's also, uh, this, there's just much to unpack in it, which is what's really exciting to me about this piece. There's still a lot to discuss when it comes to To Pimp a Butterfly. And some of the text in this article, some of the analysis that's brought forth, I think is indicative of that. But I'm really interested from you guys' standpoint, um, upon reading the article or just in thinking about Kendrick and To Pimp a Butterfly, what are your sort of thoughts in reflecting on it? What do you think, for instance, um, feels relevant, not just, I mean, everything feels relevant about the uh, album, but what uniquely feels newly relevant or especially relevant when we look at 2022 when we look at today's landscape in regards to the music industry in regards to race what are some thoughts you guys are having on that uh we'll start with joshima actually since ryan started last time i was gonna say we should start with ryan because i'm still collecting how i want to articulate this so we'll start with ryan ryan <laughs> what are your thoughts on tipping butterfly and sort of where we are with it in the the year 2022? Um, I kind of feel a bit like Jashima because it's a huge question because Tibbet Butterfly is one of the most dense pieces of art to ever be unpacked. Um, and seven years is not enough time. I'm going to be honest with you. Seven years is not enough time to, for Tibbet Butterfly. Um, even though like you had Dissect do like, his first season ever on Tibbet Butterfly and it was brilliant and I learned so much. Um... And I just want to get out of the way. Spin Butterfly is, in my opinion, one of the like crowning achievements of hip hop and crowning achievements of music. Um, it's just one of those albums that you can't have enough words for. It's just that good. Um, and that's why I think seven years is not enough time. Because you think about something like Illmatic, right? Illmatic is still being unpacked. There are still lines people are understanding now. Still things that people are finding in that album, in those 10 tracks that are um that are new and yeah like you said every single year to pimp a butterfly just kind of gains a new context whether that's within the music industry whether that's to do with race and just the world in general and politics because it's an album that deals with everything that kendrick's at the center of um and all of this is just me stalling because i cannot try to <laughs> articulate how this album is perceived anymore because you know there is no general public opinion anymore this album is so abstract that some people absolutely despise it and don't understand it or like i was talking to a friend the other day um someone i just met recently and we talked about kendrick and he was like i listened to that album i just i just don't get it it was just so out there i just didn't get it but someone like me i remember sitting there listening to it for the first time when i was like 16 and just like on the, on the date recently just taking it all in thinking like I didn't understand 99% of what I just heard but I know it was something special and I'm gonna just sit here and dig into it and dig into it and go line by line until I understand everything this man has just put into this thing because I know 
that it's special. I can't explain why, but it's special. And I think a lot of people had that kind of feeling. And even to this day, it's one of those albums that's so difficult to talk about because the first time everyone heard it, I don't think anyone heard it off rip and thought, oh, oh yeah, good. <laughs> so it's an album about this thing. No, it's not. It's just, it's it's a huge, huge behemoth of a piece of art. And I think um, Nawaz's piece is just brilliant at kind of giving a context to a through line of the album, um, talking about the way he, he the, the relationship of entertainment and the idea of Kendrick as a hypocrite, as someone who wants to criticise entertainment and um, pulling that David Foster Wallace quote, something I hadn't seen anyone do before about how um, the hypocrisy of if you try to criticise entertainment while being entertaining in order for your message to come through somehow, you are a hypocrite because you are feeding into the very thing that you're trying to criticise. And I think um, the way that celebrity culture has expanded since 2015, the way that stan culture has expanded, it can be a beautiful thing, but it can be a very dangerous thing when you look at celebrity worship and how that's developed and how it feels like in a couple of years' time, BTS stands are going to run the world. So like Elliot and Tyler, <laughs> that's why I'm making great relationships with you guys. So when you're our overlords, you'll look upon us favorably. <laughs> yeah, I really... And Elliot, it is greatly appreciated. Elliot, we will, we will buy your music on Bandcamp, Patreon, wherever you would like us to purchase those vinyls. I think that, you know... Um, and but yeah, I... I yeah. I will, I will, I will gladly note this one upon my ascension to the throne. But Joshma, <laughs> go ahead. I hope you, uh, I hope you feel more. I do, I do. Um, I think that something that's interesting is when I was looking up, when I was reading this piece two days ago, I generally do this with most album album centric pieces, where I Google what someone has added to Wikipedia about it. So the first thing that comes up is categorized by Billboard as a politically charged conscious rap album. And I want to talk about that because I think in 2015, that note might have been completely acceptable by whoever put it in and no one would blink twice. Now you would probably get a flurry of feedback from folks saying, when has rap not been conscious? When has it not been politically charged? When has hip hop not been a commentary on the livelihoods of African-Americans, right? And I think that that's something to really think about in a time that's trying to find its balance between easy to consume, but best consumed when critically thought about. And I think that's a really challenging place to be as a society. Oftentimes when I see folks criticizing a celebrity, a musician, whomever for their take on something, their lack of a take on something, I think what we're saying we want is for them to be hypocritical. And I don't think hypocritical is maybe the correct word, but be evolving, right? Because in theory, in some way, we're all part of the system that we're saying we want to dismantle or rebuild or divest from. But when people publicly that are benefiting from the system comment on the systems, comment on how they want to change, comment on how they want to learn, make those choices by creating opportunities or changing something that they can, then suddenly we find ourselves being a little bit more willing to hear that person versus another person because though they still benefit from the system and it could potentially be all talk, we're like, oh, but you're critiquing what's happening. You're critiquing it with us, right? And there's some type of camaraderie there that signals potential progress in the future. And so 
I think it's actually going to be the most beautiful era for an album like this one because it challenges quick consumerism to realize that something that might actually result in change cannot be consumed and processed and peeled back this quickly. And maybe the change we're seeking as countries, as nations, as political climates, as industries also needs to be processed a little longer and solutions that aren't reactionary, but I don't know if mitigatory is a word, but like solutions that are designed to mitigate the problem, not react to the problem, might take some time and a hell of a lot of processing to build. Um, So I'm curious to see how an album like this, which I think is the exploration and commentary a lot of young fans are looking for about systems, is going to be well received because it's not easy to consume. Yeah, it's definitely not like it, it. It's easy. It can be easy to consume. I think that's one of the beauties of consumption is that it's all relative to the consumer how they choose to go about it, and you learn a lot about people by learning how they choose to approach consumption and whether or not they want to be constantly in a state of easy, simplistic consumption or whether or not they want to mix with some criticism or whether or not they just constantly want to be critical and then what school of criticism are they going by? What ideas uh, are they upholding when it comes to their criticism? Where do those ideas source ideas source from? You know, there is no linear way of saying, like, this is a good way to take music. This is a bad way to take music because you know, anybody can sort of have their own healthy way of enjoying something in any manner of ways. But... I think there is something amazing to be gained about an album like To Pimp a Butterfly allowing for so much multitudinous places to discuss something, so many places to go. And I think one of the things, you know, this idea of hypocrisy or this idea of the contradictions in general of like we are rap, like this is a rap album talking about the rap industry. This is an album that has brought tremendous success to... Kranjik Lamar and has brought tremendous conversation about success and and what greatness in hip-hop is but at the same time it serves as a a, a way to sort of rebel against all of that I think that that's the living embodiment of our predicament when it comes to art versus maybe capital maybe exploitation maybe neoliberalism maybe power it's just a beautiful thing it's just a beautiful thing Right. And um, I think that what's great about Kendrick Lamar and the David Foster Wallace quote and the idea of the attack on entertainment is that it's truly we picture an attack being something very linear and being something that's, you know, we're against the thing. But we all like entertainment. We all like to be entertained. We all like to laugh and party. So it's it's impossible for any of us to truly be like against entertainment. And yet we recognize how much negativity and exploitation lies in it. And so guilt is not enough. Being feeling kind of bad is just not enough. Feeling bad about our choices and the things that are happening it's none of it's enough. The only thing that we can really do is be in that constant process of questioning and asking and, and and thinking and rethinking. And that's why something like this is great. And uh, my last sort of note, because uh, uh, it is a bit of a shorter piece and, you know, there's not so much to say for us at this current moment about this because 
a lot of the <laughs> conversation would definitely need to be larger. Um, it's very interesting for all of us being Asian folks here in the podcast, as we've mentioned earlier, um, and for Haitham Nawaz, uh, I believe to be an Asian person too, and certainly for all of us to be non-black, um, and, and especially, in, you know, with, with race being what it is. Um, I think it's very interesting for us to be looking at this from all of our different backgrounds, from not being from the same background of Kendrick Lamar and saying like, well, what is it that we can pull? What is it that that's meaningful to us? What is it that we not only see as valuable because we see it all as valuable, but that we might be able to understand in our own way and that might be able to help us in our reflections on music, but just culture and life in general in our own lives. Like, To Pimple Butterflies is an album that has affected my life. It's affected how I look at music. It's affected how I live. And not just from a, from a standpoint, a, valu- a valuable standpoint of like wanting to have solidarity with black people, but also from a standpoint of like being closer and closer to understanding and to changing the sort of systems of oppression that dominate everything. And, and nothing can really summate the idea of how systems of, systems of oppression work because of how pervasive they are in everything and how inescapable they are in all of us than an album like To Pimp a Butterfly, which very much embodies that idea of attacking it, but also being a hypocrite because you're, you're playing into it, captured by the very thing you're fighting against as David Foster Wallace uh, says in the quote. So that's sort of my take on that. And that piece is on the Brock Press. It's called Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly Exposed the Contradictions of the Music Industry from the Inside Out Seven Years Ago. It's by Haitham Nawaz. Yeah, and shout out to a piece that takes an album that has been reviewed to death and analyzed to death and as me as someone who's read a lot of those reviews and analysis managed to make a new contribution and managed just to draw a line that I haven't seen drawn before. So yeah, shout out to that, seven years later, still doing something new. So yeah, cool. Beauty of writing, the beauty of music journalism. <laughs> well, Ryan... We've also got some other dimensions of music journalism to go over today with our last piece. It's from you. It's about Encanto. And that's very exciting for me. So I would love to hear you uh, talk about this piece that you brought to the table. Yeah. So this piece is about uh, We Don't Talk About Bruno. So in the spirit of that, we will be taking a 15-minute silence in order to honor the name of the song. I'm joking. Um, so <laughs> this is a that was really of... fun. I was like, I'm down. <laughs> fifteen, <laughs> yeah, just fifteen minutes guys. is like shorter than I remember it being. <laughs> yeah, it was a nice nap. Um, yeah. Anyway, this is a video by Howard Ho from uh, on YouTube. I'm back on my video agenda, so sorry, Charlie. Um, so yeah, I maybe should have saved this episode, this episode for uh, one with Mickey so he could drop some musical theatre knowledge on us but I was, I was excited about this video when I saw it and I wanted to bring it right away um, so because I've been trying to bring pieces that kind of are outside of my comfort zone like I think a few weeks ago I brought a piece about Earl Sweatshirt 
and there isn't a piece I'd read to like push myself and push my knowledge because I'm already a huge fan. That was kind of like an affirming piece. So I wanted like these last couple of weeks I tried to bring things that I've used to learn and through this piece I've learned about, about musical theatre and like music theory and, and uh, strong song structure inside of musical theatre. And I think the brilliant thing that Howard Ho does is give you a great dose of technical knowledge from within the niche while relating it to the movie in a very emotional and quite brilliant way while not being able to lose the audience. You know, that it's a really important thing to know the line between giving enough technical knowledge before you lose your audience. And as someone who is pretty much a casual in this area, like obviously I'm a big fan of music, big fan of hip hop. You know, I don't know barely anything about musical theater. You know, I'm barely a fan of musicals despite being Indian. Um, <laughs> but Oh no, um, Ryan. <laughs> Did you just equate movies with songs in them to theater? It's so different. I know, I know, I'm just... I'm, Taking the piss. Well, Encanto is a movie with Encanto is a movie with songs in it, it so it's relevant for this, I suppose. But its roots okay. are in musical theatre, with uh, Lima Miranda being the uh, brain behind it. But yeah, I want to ask you guys how you felt of this one, how you felt about the musical theatre knowledge, and like how much you knew before, and how you dealt with the new information, whether it was like too much or whether you managed to follow it fine. Elliot, you go ahead. Well, I, I think my perspective on this is pretty pretty weird because i actually do have a little bit of a background in theater i used to do musical theater in college and i got really into it for a couple of years and one of my favorite musicals maybe my favorite musical was in the heights which is lin-manuel miranda's debut musical um, i'm dominican i'm dominican chinese and uh, my parents are dominican i'm from new york as well so a musical that's set in Washington Heights, which I'm not from, but is home to many Dominican people and about Dominican, Puerto Rican people and different Latin people in New York uh, that incorporates hip hop and reggaeton and merengue. It was definitely a recipe for success for me and a, a musical that I thought was, was very well written and very brilliant in a lot of ways. I even grew to become a big uh, Hamill fan uh, when I was in college because that was this that was all the rage when we were in college and in theater and everybody was into Hamilton everybody was into all the songs and all the actors sort of broke out including David Diggs who is the frontman of Clipping which was one of the wildest sort of <laughs> dualities because Hamilton is not Clipping um, and I think. As time has gone on and I've kind of grown out of musical theater and sort of adapted some different ideas and philosophies on culture and music and things like that. I guess, unfortunately, I just feel like a lot of the Manuel Miranda stuff has aged poorly and not in a sense of taking away from his brilliance as an artist because at the end of the day, not only can he just write a, a great song, but the video that you brought to the conversation is indicative of just how much thought and how many different intensely intellectual sort of ideas are to be ex, you know explored in his music, whether it's just the idea of the madrigal and the familia madrigal, which is a thing I did not pick up on, was blown away by just watching this video. At the end of the day, Hip hop is raw, right? And and 
R&B and these different styles of music, bachata in some cases, some of the different, you know, the different Latin styles of music that are present in, in canto. You know, there's a, there's a celebration and there's a rawness and there's an energy and there is a history and a culture of imperialism that dominates it, but also that these musical forms a lot of times represent a revolution against represent a break from at the very least you know you go to the party and you listen to you you merengue and and in that sense whether people are conscious of it or not it is a release from the realities of eurocentric exploitation and capitalism that latin american countries have been decimated by and Lin-Manuel Miranda, as much as he is brilliant as an artist in utilizing these concepts and combining them with classical music concepts and musical theater concepts, these classical music concepts and musical theater concepts are very much dominant in that, in that Eurocentric hegemony. They are very much a part of that. And the messages of these movies and these musicals often are very moving and helpful but they're very much never something questioning those powers. You know, Lin-Manuel Miranda ultimately as a political figure is one that I am very uncomfortable with because he's a person utilizing these raw ideas, these, these beautiful, powerful musical ideas that are nascent to these Latin American and black cultures and uh, which is all, you know, it's all African cultures. And at the same time, supposedly for one elevating it because now it has you know there's iambic pentameter and shit like that right like now he oh he's putting classical music into it well that's that's now it's really elevated and smart and there's there's a sense of like you know obviously sort of cleaning it too and these feelings of and how he rises to prominence and how all of the the white hegemony of musical theater and classical music sort of looks at him as this genius star and this this amazing brown boy right like it's just a very uncomfortable dynamic that is not exactly relieved when looking into how he deals with puerto rican politics so that's my whole tangent on lin-manuel miranda and that is something that always comes to mind and makes me slightly uncomfortable when it, when it came to Encanto, which is a movie I loved, and he wrote some great records, uh, some great songs for it. But at the same time, sometimes I do have to sit there and go, well, this dude's a genius, right? This dude's uh, a person who, you know, artistically has taken so many notes, has learned so much, and is adapting so much, and creating so much that is groundbreaking and unique, even if it is at points uncomfortable politically and something like Encanto is a movie that's going to inspire a lot a lot a lot a lot a lot of people it already has it's going to be relevant for generations probably and his incredible ability to utilize these artistic ideas and these these intellectual uh, sort of dialogues these discourses that exist in his music is something that will influence generations I just hope that it influences generations to then eventually sort of pull away from centralizing Lin-Manuel Miranda, not erasing him, not destroying him, but decentralizing Lin-Manuel Miranda and the Lin-Manuel Miranda industrial complex and looking into now these musical styles and what their classics are, what their classical traditional ideas are, what their home is. Uh, rather than merely looking at him as all that there is to know about it, you know? 
but the, also the video is awesome. The video is really good by Howard Ho, and, and there's really great analysis in it. Yeah, the hope is that he inspires someone better, right? Like, mm. th- this video gives you like a begrudging respect for Lin Manuel Miranda, <laughs> because, like you said, like the line between a madrigal and the madrigal family is just brilliant. It's a brilliant, brilliant idea, and something that I never would have known had Howard Ho not pointed out. And that right there kind of gives the piece purpose, right? When you sit down and create a piece, sometimes you can start writing something or you can be in the middle of a pitch and be like, man, no one cares about this. Like, this, is, this doesn't do anything for anyone. This is just me trying to think right. of something so I can get paid. You know? Like, right. I want to sit down and write something that makes an impact and gives a purpose. And like, this piece gives a purpose because it does a great thing of deepening your connection to the art. And um, like you were saying within Mamra, like you have to kind of respect the level of detail that goes into it. Something that I would never have unlocked about a movie that I also really adore and a movie that means a lot for fans of animation, honestly, to see Disney make something good again, you know, without Pixar, without the help of anyone else, then make something that is good for the first time in a really long time. So, yeah. Although I'll quickly interject because Disney and Pixar did just drop another banger with Turning I, Red. That is Pixar. That is Pixar. I'm happy to say that is yeah. Pixar's work. Pixar. <laughs> I would not give Pixar Disney absolutely that. smashed that one. Turning Red is incredible. You're absolutely on point with that. Joshima, yeah, did you have some other some stuff that we didn't really pick up on? I'm curious to hear what you think. I loved listening to both of you just talk about that. That was really interesting. Yeah, long gone are my days of high school theater where I played Princess Jasmine's understudy, Um, you know, and and did a little bit of South Pacific. But I think growing up in New York, I remember a, a relative taking me to see a theater show and commenting on the fact that it was funny in a very ironic way that the arts often was created by in modern day as in the actual production by the most marginalized and consumed by the least because access to being able to buy a ticket to a show that was doing really well at one point wasn't what it is now it was very expensive hard to get into something you might have needed to have x type of knowledge about to consume or understand because it was so westernized and so um anglicized in a lot of ways um and then you come to the irony of going to performances now that have traveled the entire world, but audiences are still like 98% Caucasian for a lot of those shows, right? And I think that that's something to think about. But this video interview, interview breakdown specifically, I loved because I haven't seen Encanto yet. Um, and so it was really awesome for me to get to understand a breakdown like that. But it made me think a lot about the critique I think I may have internally had of many people from the South Asian community as composers, as writers, much like Elliot's critique of Miranda. Uh, but I've never really granted them the same amount of grace to explore with other genres, styles, languages, integrations, as much as I have criticized when they do that as them making something more consumable for a white American audience, right? I think I've always gone to the default of making that assumption because I'm like, oh, you're making this palatable, so it's scalable, all of the things that Ellie talked about, which I still think are entirely true. But when I was listening to them break down kind of how the song was created and all of the different parts of it sonically and 
kind of culturally to theater, I thought about the idea that I've never really, my first reaction has never been like, oh, this incredible South Asian composer also has the right to explore things outside of what is theirs. And maybe if they get to do that, I got to give them that amount of at least grace credit. I don't know the term I want to use here, but that, that, that's something I thought was really cool to think about. I also think the cast of Encanto is expletive incredible, um, which I didn't know until I watched that. But yeah, I also think that like down to, I think I had mentioned that consuming theater can sometimes be something that until more recently wasn't accessible to a lot of folks, especially successful musicals, right? Ones that are touring in certain ways, things that are Broadway. Um, This video and animation, I think, has given us access to understanding how something is created in music and in film and animation in a way that we're not usually talking about, right? At least in our echo chambers, we might be discussing producers or songwriters and how they create. But because I'm not maybe exposed to the theater community as much, as a general consumer, I know very little about how a theater composition is created for a song or a musical composition is created comparatively speaking. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that. Every time you bring a video interview, 2% of me is like, oh God, I got to watch this seven times to understand what I'm going to say about it. But then I'm all like 98% of me is like, I always leave having learned all of these new things. And then I end up in a K hole of watching all these animation movies. <laughs> that is my ultimate plan is to just indoctrinate people into loving animation. <laughs> Not a real K hole. You guys, that was a poor choice of words. I, I don't partake. I, I really do appreciate too, that you're bringing video commentary video essays to the table because that's my realm it's sort of a realm that not only i try to create in but i spend most of my time watching there's so many creatives that do great music journalism on youtube um and journalism of all sorts even music journalism is even like a underexplored realm for youtubers 100 percent. whereas the film stuff and the entertainment stuff is amazing so i keep them coming to be honest i wouldn't mind doing a three piece all three video essay uh um (laughs) podcast for this i know charlie may have reservations but i think that there's at least room for bringing that more to the forefront well i would love for us to like talk about body language i'm with elliot on this one i think something in journalism especially media journalism that isn't valued as much as well in this case in in the case of ryan's videos uh tonality but in the case of many Mm. other pieces of music journalism that are through video i think body language and like the value of a silence, right? A lot of what I love about In Search of Sauce is how much dedication we put towards the people that create the piece, not just the people or the subject that the piece is about. And so I think video could be a whole other type of medium to explore, you know, great journalism. In. It, it changes I, completely the um, the tools you have at your, your disposal, yeah. right? Like you just said, Justin, tonality is just like, this huge thing that you don't get in writing because a lot of the time you can you put your own kind of voice on the writer sometimes right which you can't do in a video and it's very intense it's like a very intentional part of videos to kind of yeah put things across in that more abstract way that you can't do in writing so yeah good point there yeah yeah it's like ryan when he whispers like asmr ryan that really Mm. caught the digital fest fans this year (laughs) You know, tonality is everything, Elliot. 
Aha. <laughs> I will keep this in mind. I do think Ryan has a very relaxing voice, much like 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 a milk, like a like a warm hot chocolate. <laughs> I'd um, almost gone like a full year without the ASMR allegations, and they've come. This back. episode is sponsored by <laughs> Ryan's recent meditation on the Calm app. Just kidding, they don't sponsor us, but I wouldn't yeah, be yeah, mad yeah. if they did. Hi, sponsors. Yeah, give us money. Well, and speaking of giving money, uh, we don't have any, but we can give some some attention and some grace to Howard Ho, the creator of this video. Um, now at 100K subscribers, I see, so shout out to that. The video is called How We Don't Talk About Bruno Works and Why It's Amazing. And it is a really great video that's doing really well on YouTube right now. Really great example of some analytical music writing. And that is the third of our three pieces today. We, in short, went over. Are artists removing music from streaming? Ah, motorcycles outside. Ah, ah, stop. Please. Okay. We live in New so York. the first article. What's up? Yeah. I said, for those who don't know, Elliot and I live in New York. Yeah. New York is very much a character in anything I record here. Um, Complex. Are artists removing music from streaming for the best reasons? By Andre G. That is Joshima's article. Mine was the Brock Press, Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly Exposed the Contradictions of the Music Industry from the Inside Out Seven Years Ago, long title, by Haitham Nawaz. And our third video is How We Don't Talk About Bruno Works and Why It's Amazing by Howard Ho. That was brought in by Ryan. Thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, we are always looking for independent writer's work. The audio, visual in the video in the written format especially in the written format and we are constantly trying to help you guys get attached to some great music writing so please let us know if you've got something that you want to show us whether it's yours if it's yours it better be good and if it's somebody else's then we'll just pretend we didn't see it if it's not but if it's yours it's going to be really embarrassing if it's bad um but if it's good, we'll left, we'll probably talk about it. Do you rate and review our podcast on any service you listen to? Um, listen to us on. And thank you for listening. This has been In Search of Sauce. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you. This episode of Search Source featured Ryan Gore, Elliot Sank, and Josh Mawarder of the Search Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth End Podcast Network. Music for this show is fucked up by Barsty. Thanks to Chirp Records for its use. This has been a Search Source and Fifth End Podcast Network production. Links to Barsty, Chirp Records, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.